0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. This is really weird. My guest today has been so patient because I usually record my shows through Skype. Okay, I call through Skype, and I call their phone, or I Skype them, and I've never had a problem. And today, he was nice enough. We started doing an interview, and it got cut out. And I was freaking out because I'm a perfectionist, and I got him again, and it cut out. And so, finally now, we're doing it through my speakerphone, on my phone, and he's been so patient, and I got to tell you about my guest. He, uh, he basically, he's a photographer turned director, and he directed a great movie I loved. I loved it because, one, it's a documentary, and I love them. Two, it deals with musicians, who I love. Three... A bunch of those musicians have been on Cooper Talk, and four, it's just a kick-ass movie. If you like music, you got to see it. It's called Hired Gun, and he has a spinoff with one of the stars, Ray Parker Jr., which we're going to talk about, and my guest is Fran Strine. How you doing, Fran? I'm good,
1: Steve. How are you today?
0: Good. I feel like I've been talking to you for all day. I feel bad. It's... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good, man. So, we we were talking earlier, uh, before we got on the phone. Now, you, you grew up in Spain, and you came over to Georgia, to Atlanta, when you were five. And that's when you started to fall in love with music, right?
1: It is, yeah. I discovered, oddly enough, uh, Ray Parker Jr. early on in my in my childhood with a song called The Other Woman. And I liked it because I had that kind of distorted guitar, you know? And, and so I was like, okay, this is cool. And then uh, a little later, I, I discovered Alice Cooper and Kiss and Judas Priest, and that's where my love of uh, the harder music came, came to be.
0: And now, when did you decide to start doing photography for music?
1: Uh, you know, it was by accident. I never set out to be a, a photographer or a filmmaker or anything like that. I used to sneak my, con- my, my camera into concerts just to take pictures for memories. And after a few years... Uh, friends would tell me that, uh, man, you got a great eye, you know, the composition's great, the lighting's cool, you know, those look like iconic images, and after a few years, I started shopping my portfolio around and started getting gigs, and uh, the next thing you know, I went up on a tour that I badly wanted to get onto because I've never toured before, and I'd see all my idols, like Niels Hour, and Mark Weiss, and Ross house and you know doing all these tours with these artists I was like man what a cool job and I got on one called tattoo the earth in early 2000 and that's kind of what jump-started my career
0: now what what does being a tour photographer entail like what what is it do you have to get there early and you do setup or what is it like I mean what is your per se not your job description but what would be your schedule let's say back then when you're on a tour and you're the guy taking photos
1: Well, uh, back on Tattoo of the Earth, you know, it was an all-day festival, so the first band would hit at about 11 a.m., you know, and my job was to go just take pictures of all that stuff, plus the festivities uh, that were going on around the festival. You know, it was also a concert and an art festival, you know, with all these great tattoo artists. Now, when I jumped to, like, the stains who I worked with for about seven or eight years, my job would be to go wherever the artist was. I rode on the artist's bus, you know, that being... You know, Aaron Lewis's bus half the time, the band's bus the other half because they rode separately. Um, go to any press uh, opportunities they had, signings, uh, just kind of shadow those guys with a camera and just capture images uh, or or film. And uh, they keep it and they either create webisodes with it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they all caught on pretty early to the social media uh, angle. When record uh, started declining, sales declined, and uh, they all jumped on board, and they were smarter for doing so.
0: Now, you worked for Stain, and you worked for Nickelback. Who was first? Who did you work for first? And did you? Was it easy to trans? You know, get to another tour because there are two different kinds of music. I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, you know, it's all just word of mouth. You know what I mean? It's like if you can get along with the artist, and they have trust in you, and know that you're not going to expose anything weird, if there's anything weird going on Yeah, so A lot of us trust and of course your ability. Um, yeah, It was funny. I, I I remember touring with Stained and our tour ended in Oklahoma and the next day was Cether in Oklahoma starting their tour and I was hired by Seether to start that leg of the tour so I literally quit, quit the, the Stained tour jumped on the season and the next day was gone for you know nine or ten weeks and then it was either nickelback or back with stain we went you know i think the last day was in tampa with either then went straight to europe you know with one of those guys it was a hell of a year that year but uh you know it, it's an easy transition you know everybody's cool i work with you know i don't like to you know to work with people that aren't cool and I've only really quit one tour. I don't want to name any names, but it just wasn't a good working environment. and It was my last tour.
0: Now, i got to ask you this. You go out with these bands, do you get tired of the music after a while? Because, you know, I love Springsteen, and I can see him Uh when he's in L.A. I'll see him four times. You know, I saw him, you know, all the time. But after every night, I'd be like, uh, you know when he changes it up you know I've talked to different musicians who like we'll talk about Rudy Zarzo who was in your movie Higher Gun who said it was different you know when you play Bloyster Cult and with Whitesnake because Whitesnake had the same set list pretty much what is it do you sit there and were you going oh my god not this song again yeah.
1: <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple I don't want to name any names but yeah I mean it, it can get uh, Higher Gun but just like anything else uh, like when you're editing you know, a film or whatever, it all becomes white noise after a while, and you know, every one, every one of these guys moves on stage, you can capture them a lot better, which is a plus, and uh, just a lever, but yeah, after a while, it just becomes white noise, you don't even hear anymore, unless it's a really cool song you really like and enjoy, but uh, you know, most times when I'm touring with these guys, we do, you know, 150, 200 shows a year, so yeah, you get... They get burnt on it, but, you know, they know they have to deliver, and they still enjoy enjoy performing
0: live. Now, you're out there on the road, and it seems like, especially that one year, you know, you're going back to back to back to tours. You're not home. It has to be, you know, I did stand-up comedy in the late 80s, early 90s, and I would go, you know, when I would go on an 11-day run, you know, after a while, it sort of sucks. You don't know where you are. I'm not to the level of you where you're going eight or nine weeks. Now, given you probably stayed in nicer hotels than we did in the comedy world. But did it start? Did it start taxing you? Did it start getting to you?
1: It did. Once I moved to North, northern California, because I love it here so much. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's tranquil. Uh, I mean, it's, it really is paradise. I feel so fortunate, lucky to live here, and I would miss it. You know, and after a while, after 20 years of touring, just about it kind of rots your soul. And I don't want to sound ungrateful because I am grateful. I got to see some parts of the world that I would never have gotten to see uh, otherwise. But, you know, you start missing life. You know, life to me isn't uh, going city to city and to bus or staying in a hotel. Um, you know, I'm in an age now. Yeah, where uh, I'm ready to move on or do something uh, more fulfilling and, and making movies is uh, really cool to me right
0: now. Now, how did you come about? First of all, how did you decide to make this movie, Hire Gun, and how did you start the whole process? Because in these days, I know with like the Ray Lewis when you're doing a fun uh, uh, Kickstarter, I believe, or GoFundMe, which is great. Uh-huh. I, I love, honestly, yeah. I love when they do it for movies. I do hate, though, I saw someone on Facebook saying how some lady was wanted to GoFundMe so she could buy her kid a video game system. That stuff yeah. pisses me off. <laughs> right, right. But you're sitting there. You're, you know, yeah. you're, well, first of all, why did you move to Northern California?
1: Uh, you know, I, I shot a commercial out here for the tourism board and absolutely fell in lo- love with it. Uh, I did date a girl here for a while, uh, several years ago and would come and visit, but not not this part uh, specifically. I live in a town called San Rafael, and uh, I mean, it's just stunning. And I was just like, one day I'm gonna live there. And uh, at that time I had the means, and I packed up and moved out out here and had to look back, you know. And the idea for Hired Gun came about uh, about three, four years ago when I was on tour with a band, and we were sitting in Singapore, And that's when I grew weary of tiring, uh, of touring, I'm sorry. And I knew I needed to find my way out. And I had recently seen a film called 20 Feet from Stardom, which is about the backup singers, and it was phenomenal. And it kind of sparked an idea. I was just like, well, man, what if I do one on session guitarists and uh, uh, touring guitar players and drummers, bass players and whatnot? And, uh, you know, the, the funding came easy. Uh, for for that one, uh, an investor came in and funded the whole thing, just about, and I was off to the races, man. I mean, it, it took a long time to get these interviews. we I think we interviewed about sixty people, and uh, I had to work around their schedules because these are working musicians, you know, so you get them when you can. And when I felt like I had enough to to tell the story, uh, you know, we stopped interviewing and and went and cut the film.
0: Well, see, what fascinates me about this movie is the fact that, you know, we all all see bands, and you know, but we know like who the Rolling Stones are and stuff like that. But like my good friend Rich Redman is a drummer for Jason Aldean. People just know yep. Jason Aldean now. Rich, you know, does motivational speaking, and drummers always hustle. And you probably noticed that from when you were doing your documentary. Drummers, like you interviewed Kenny Aronoff, and that guy is always on the hustle. I mean, they, they just work their asses off. But it amazes me because these guys make a living, but they never really get the fanfare they get a following they get stuff like that but one i'm surprised that movies never really been done like that before and two it was just a great idea but when you're sitting there and you want to start doing that where do you start from you had the idea you got the funding where do you go from there because it's you have to decide who you're going to get you have to decide i mean how did you start the whole process of booking people and then getting the film started
1: you know, it's funny. Uh, it is a music documentary, for sure. And there's some great music in it. But to me, the music was always in the background. It was more about the story of the individual player. Uh, and the first person I reached out to was Liberty DeVito. Uh, a friend of mine was a drum tech, and he's like, have you heard the Liberty story? And I had no idea if I'd ever heard the name Liberty before. I'm like, no, I haven't. He's like, man, he was Billy Joel's drummer for 30-plus years. Billy kind of kicked him in the face, and... Uh, Left him to die, basically. You know, you need to, to follow up on this and check it out. So I did. And I found it to be uh, both horrifying and fascinating. So I reached out to Liberty because I knew that was going to be a compelling story. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, man, he was one of the focal points in the film. Him and uh, Russell Jabber's both just wonderful people. And the other person was Rudy Sarzo. Uh, I don't care what kind of music the guy played or even if he did play music, he's just an awesome person. Probably one of the most grounded people I've ever met and just grateful for everything he has. And I think that, uh, the, you know, we get a, a lot of responses that just people just fall in love with his character, you know, uh, forget who he played with. You know, he's just a, a great person and incredible musician. So mm-hmm. that's how I kind of flush these stories out. There had to be a, a compelling story and uh, really move people, because when I go to the movies, you know, I want to be, moved, I want to cry, I want to laugh, I want to cheer, and I think that uh, we delivered that and hired God in all aspects.
0: Well, it's funny, because both Rudy and Liberty have been on my show, and Rich Remen hooked me up with Liberty, and I got a message in my machine one time, I don't know where I was, and it's him, and he's like, hey, I heard you want to talk to me, and in mine I'm thinking, holy crap, that's Liberty DeVito from Billy Joel, because I was a Billy Joel fan growing up. And Rudy I gotten through Twitter because he knows Eliza James Eliza James who's on my show who's a violinist who plays for Paul Anka and Burt Backrack and he's Rudy's also friends with Bobby Levy who's a comic who's a friend and Rudy was fascinating because you know we don't think you know you, you sit there and that, that's what's great about your movie and you're right it, I say it's a music documentary but it is about the people but someone like Rudy you know you think that the guy he's played for White Snake quiet Riot. Um, Ozzy, I mean, he was in the first Ozzy band. You know when he talks about yeah. uh, Randy Rhodes and then Bluey Colt, and you're sitting there, and this guy isn't a household name, but he's played with four powerhouse—I mean, four powerhouse, popular, popular bands. And that's what was great about your movie. Now, did you, when you contacted these guys, did you do a query letter, or how did they, how did you get in touch with Rudy Sarzo per se? Uh, actually, a friend of mine
1: knew Rudy and reached out to him, and he jumped at the opportunity to do it. And we went to his house and did the interview. He was probably about the third or fourth interview we conducted, and I knew right away that he was gonna be uh, a focal point just like Liberty. Um, and we kind of glossed over the whole Randy Rhodes thing. I could tell that that day he did not want to really talk about it. But that story is kind of what broke his career, as sad as that is. You know, because had he not quit the Aussie band, he would not have leapfrogged back into Quiet Riot or White Snake or Dio or for Cole's or you know where he's at now with the Guess Who. So I called him and let him know my thought. I was like, you know, I really want to get you to be a focal point in the movie, but I kind of need. That story, you know, you know, if we do it tastefully, would you agree to, to talk about it? And he did, so we went back down for a second interview, and uh, that's really all we talked about. You know, that scene that you see with him talking about the plane crash—that was the take, and uh, you can see it on his face and it on the sleeve that day. It was—it was, it was uh, really sad. I can tell you, the whole crew was in the corner just weeping after this interview. It was uh, uh, really something.
0: Now. Did you sit there and put a, like you hit up Liberty, you hit up Rudy. Did you put up like sort of like a, a wish list or how did you do your research? Because you have some great talent. I, I know you have Steve Lukather from uh, Toto uh-huh. and a few other people. How did uh-huh. you put them together? Because in, in all honesty, the guys you got are great. The only There's only one person that came across like a jerk and that was the lead singer from Filter. And I'm just going to say that because he was basically like, damn. I mean, yeah. that, was, that was just right. my opinion, and other people I talked to said you're the right. same thing, because then, then you're sitting there going, <laughs> he was like the antagonist, you're like, wait a second, you know, right. you know, Fran's talking about all these great musicians, and this guy's like, ah, we'll just pay him, and as a music lover, you go, well, maybe that's why your band isn't as popular, but how did you put your wish list right. together, and did you, is there anyone that you really wanted to get, and you couldn't for some reasons of it's scheduling, or they weren't doing interviews?
1: You know, there was no criteria, really. You know, are you a musician? Are you a hired guy? I want to talk to you, because you might have a really... I've I've read comments, you know, like, well, I don't know who any of these people are, you know, like in the reviews or whatnot. And it's like, well, that's why I made the movie, so you do know who they are, you know? (laughs) That's the whole point of the movie. Uh, the, The person I wanted to get that was the hardest to get was Steve Lukather, because why would he just give the story away? I mean, he's probably the most renowned session guitar player ever, and uh, I, I emailed him three or four times. He's like, man, you, know, you sound like a cool dude, but you know, I'm kind of saving my story for the Toto book and possible documentary. And I understood. But then I got an email from him right at the very end because he saw Kenny Ernoff, Jay Graydon, uh, Ray Parker Jr., David Foster, and those were all his lifelong friends. You know, They met each other since they were teenagers. He's like, damn it. Now, I have to do your movie, man. All my buddies are in your film. When can you get down here? So I went and we spent three or four hours talking to him, and his story was just jaw dropping. What a cool dude!
0: yeah he has a legend and people don't know and that's one of, one of those people where you go they should know who he is and they don't they know Toto and just people still don't even know some of them young kids don 't know who Toto is now I got to ask you one thing I one thing I noticed about the movie also is you had a very you know you, you had a good interviewing style and me as someone who interviews I, I pick up that you know when when someone like I had photographer Sam Jones on who has a show now and he is I liked it I tweeted him after I saw a show he had a good interview style. Were you nervous on your first interviews when you're interviewing musicians? Because I know you've dealt with musicians, but you've been a mm-hmm. photographer. You haven't been talking to them. What was going through your mind those first few audition I mean, those first few interviews, and did you feel get yourself getting comfortable, more comfortable as you were doing it?
1: Yeah, I never felt nervous. Uh, I had done documentaries in the past, uh, mo- mostly like making of album type documentaries that accompany the CD when you buy them. Back when they sold CDs. So I had done interviews before, and I don't really get starstruck. I was a little freaked out when I met Alice Cooper, because only because it was my childhood thing that, uh, that brought me into the music. But uh, I don't really interview. It's more of a discussion. You know, I sit down, and we just, it's like having a cup of coffee with somebody. And that's my style, I guess. I think you can bring more out of it. And it also helped that I've worked in the studio environment and the touring environment for so many years. So I know their lingo and know where to, to direct them. And uh, it, it just worked out. You know, I feel so
0: lucky. Now, you're, you're doing the film, and I always hear about documentaries, like how much footage you had. Like, when you would sit down and interview these people, what was your longest interview, and what was your shortest interview, and how much footage did you have?
1: Um, you know what, I think the longest one was Liberty, because I spent a week in Brooklyn at his place uh, interviewing him. And I knew that was going to be a big story because Billy Joel was a big artist. And there were so many, you know, moving elements of that story that I needed to get. So I'd say who was my longest. I think we have two or three hundred hours worth of footage. I mean, we interviewed everybody for two or three hours. I did my research. You know, I would, uh, before I go interview a person, no matter how big or small they were, you know, I would do a week or two on some people uh, research and get everything uh, finite when I went in. So I knew everything about them that they probably forgot about themselves. Right.
0: So you get it and you're getting it and you have all your footage. Now, how do you decide to decide how you're going to put the story together?
1: That was the difficult part because <laughs> there's so much of good stuff and there's so much that was left on the cutting room floor that uh, just guts me. But uh, lucky for me, I had an incredible editor, uh, Gavin Fisher. I call him the Tom Brady or Joe Montana of editors. He just uh, is brilliant and really brought those, those stories to life. So we just sat there in the edit bay, you know, down in San Diego where he's at for, for weeks, you know, just kind of going through everything and piecemealing stuff together. And uh, that's how it came to be, you know. And if I I had it my way, because, you know, there there would have been more of the Steve, David Foster, Steve Lukather, Jay Gray, and Ray Parker Jr. story there. But their stories were way too big for this movie. I mean, that's uh, their own movie that that can be uh, shot right there. And, uh, you know, I've teamed up, if you want to talk about this, with Ray Parker Jr. Uh, His story was the one that fascinated me the most because a lot of people just think of him as the Ghostbusters guy, right? Right. And uh, little do they know his body of work that is just up there with Steve Lukather, you know. And even Steve Lukather told me to my face at a screening we did at Ray's house of a Iron Gun documentary. You know, he's like, dude, Ray Parker Jr. is the greatest rhythm guitar player that has ever walked the planet. And it's true, man, when you hear this guy just... Place him as a smooth stuff. It's just mind blowing how how clean it is, and you know his tones that he gets. But uh, you know, again, story way too big for the hired gun film.
0: Right now, now you know, and you said when you were younger, you liked the other woman. Was he easy yep. to get in the movie? And when you got in the movie, did at any point in your mind, at any time, did you think that it would become a spinoff about him?
1: Well, it's not really a spinoff, it's his own thing, but uh, he had just gotten back from Japan the night before, so he was a little jet-lagged, and he neglected to tell a lot of the story. But when we were doing the Hired Gun campaign, doing film festivals, screening for the Grammy uh, nomination, he would accompany me in travels, and we became fast friends, and uh, I learned more of his story. And I was like, my God, man. So here's a movie in itself that's jaw-dropping. You know, he came from Detroit, <clears throat> grew up during the riots of 67, the race riots there, and uh, would get beat down by the cops every day coming home from school, and he wanted to find a way out. So he picked up the guitar, you know, 11, 12 years old, and became good enough to be the touring guitarist for the Spinners at age 13, and then came back. And everybody's like, "Well, who's this kid? that's 13 touring with the Spinners, you know." And soon after that, Marvin Gaye picked him up and brought him in. He played on all of Marvin Gaye's records: Smokey Robinson, The Funk Brothers. Uh, you know, and then at 17 years old, Stevie Wonder called him, and that's kind of like the rest is history, you know. And uh, not only was there a session guitar player for hundreds of artists, uh, you know, songwriter. You know, he wrote "Leo Sayers," "You Make Me Feel Like Dancing." Shaka Khan, you know, you've got the love. He wrote at 18, that was his first hit. Wrote hits for Marvin Gaye. And then, uh, of course, Ghostbusters came, you know, uh, back in the 80s. And he was retired. You know, he already made millions of dollars. I was like, I'm just going to kick back and hang out with the folks because the uh, folks were getting sick. And uh, the call for Ghostbusters came, and that really changed things for him uh, again, you know.
0: Now, how did you bring it up to him that you thought you should do this movie about him? You guys have become good friends, and it's a fascinating story, and it's always great when you hear, you know, once again, you say people know him as Ghostbusters, but he's such an amazing musician, and, you know, it's funny when people say that, like you said, you know, Thor told you about him being the best rhythm guitarist, it's like I watched the Terry Caff uh, um, documentary from Chicago and how Hendrix said that guy's like the best guitarist I've ever seen and I always love when I hear stories like that because some of these people never get their due but is it something where you just said to him listen man you got stories we got to do this and we got to get it get it going
1: yes we were on a 16 hour flight to uh, Australia to the screening of hired gun and you know sitting there just chit chatting I'm like man we have to do a movie on your story because it's, uh, you know, if people love Tired Gun, they're going to really love this. Uh, So many moving parts, so many cameos, you know. uh, One thing is we're going to do re-records of some of his biggest hits and bring in special guests. Like, for instance, the other woman. Imagine him doing a duet with Lenny Kravitz on that song. Wow. Uh, he wrote, yeah, so he wrote Leo Sayers, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. Imagine bringing in, you know, Adam Levine from Maroon 5 to sing that with Ray Plank. Or the this, this Chaka Khan song with somebody coming in. So it's going to be a really cool, fascinating uh, film with a, with a lot of cool music, a lot of cool stories that people just don't understand or, or even knew about. And uh, he's fascinating, man really,
0: really cool, dude. Now, how do you go about getting material for that? Like, in your vision as a filmmaker, because that's what you are, uh-huh. a filmmaker, and you have one documentary on your belt, which was more of a of a laid-out story of more of, you know, people who do this and this. This is about Ray. How do you sit there... Uh-huh. How do you attack that as a filmmaker? Because, once again, you know, his younger life is just so fascinating, you know, that he got beat down and stuff like that, and he wanted a way out. How do you approach that... For one, to keep you know to keep the story moving, which it will. But how do you approach it as a filmmaker, documentarian, when there is not a lot of videoing stuff from when he was younger? And there's you know it's like you know you deal with trying to find old stuff if you go back to his childhood. How do you deal with that as a as a filmmaker? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well you know first off you, you you know for a documentary it's a kind of a living, breathing element. You know you can't really script out a documentary. Well, you can do those write story beats. So, for this, I think we dive into his early childhood, you know, growing up in Detroit and all those things that happened to him. And lucky for me, uh, he's got a wealth of archival footage that, uh, you know, his parents kept for him and photos and video. So, uh, and, and there's tons of stuff of him playing, like, <laughs> I remember seeing him playing Superstitious with Stevie Wonder on Sesame Street. Oh, you man. know there's that uh, footage that was out there so yeah it was really cool stuff but uh you know you just kind of follow that journey and uh, I mean there's just so many fascinating stories and, and stuff not even to do with music you know um there was one at one point the song Ghostbusters became bigger than the movie you know and the movie studio was kind of freaked out about it and, you know Ray owns that song himself like publishing most of the master so uh They didn't like that. They tried to take it away from him, and, you know, it was like, no way, man, this is my song. You know, you should have negotiated that earlier because nobody bought soundtracks back then. You know, he was the first one to have a song break out of the soundtrack, and, uh, you know, we'll dive into that, and, of course, we'll interview, you know, the guy that discovered him, Clyde Davis, uh, Stevie Wonder, you know, uh, Ivan Reitman, who called him to do the song in the first place, but uh, lots of cool, fascinating stuff.
0: Now, when you're, you're you're doing what is, are you on what is it GoFundMe or is it uh, which which one are you on?
1: We're on Indiegogo. Indiegogo, so right now. Here, yeah, so right now I do have a slate of projects that are funded, but uh, I can't get to them until late late summer, early fall, just because of the way things work. You know, the financing and you know setting up the companies. So in the meantime, I want to get this thing going and jump started so I can start sooner than later. And uh, get it picked up, which I know it will. So we're asking for, for some financing uh, on Indiegogo, and people can go search uh, who you gonna call and contribute. There's some really cool perks on there, you know, from signed guitars, signed photos, video messages. You know, Ray will even sing the Ghostbuster you know theme song to your your voicemail. So when your somebody calls you, attend singing the Ghostbuster song. Uh, sign DVDs, posters <clears throat> we'll play a concert for you if you pony up some some, some big bucks uh, but there's something on there for everybody now, and, and the, co- the coolest thing I want to mention is that this will be my first time shooting on real film
0: now, what made you decide to do real film? And, and, and is that a challenge? Because I've heard, you know, that's going back to the cutting room floor and stuff like that. And for a documentary, yeah. it seems like that's a really big task for your editor because you have so much damn footage. But what made you decide to do it yeah. on real film? Well,
1: we did a screening in Los Angeles for the press of Hired Gun, and there was a gentleman there watching the movie. Uh, and he came up to me after the, after the film, he goes, man, what a masterpiece of a movie you did, but why didn't you shoot it on film? And I told him, I was just like, well, you know, it's not feasible with, with this budget. He goes, Don't worry about that anymore. He goes, my name's Steve Bellamy. I'm the president of Kodak. And you're not going to, you're not going to deal with that anymore. Give me a call. Let's talk. And, uh. After a while, you know, I've always wanted to shoot on film, but like I said, it was unattainable because of the cost for uh, just too much. And, uh, you know, the film brings a warmth and, and, uh, and an emotion that I think is going to transcend to the screen on this story.
0: Now, I, I want to get back to Hire Gun real quick again. When you got it done, how long, how long was the shooting process and how long was it after you got all your footage till it actually came out, till you were, had a finished product?
1: Yeah, we did uh, <clears throat> about two years of filming. Like I said, we interviewed 60 some odd people and we had to wait for their schedules to, to clear up. But in the meantime, there's so much work going on in the background, clearing music, which was uh, crazy, um, clearing archival footage, finding the archival, um, so much goes into making a movie. You know, and if you look at the end credits of going to IMBD, I mean, there's literally over 200 people that worked on the film to make it happen. Um, and then the editing process was about a year. You know, that was a, that was a challenge because there was so much stuff and, and really, uh, really putting together. Then my ace my editor had some, uh, some stuff he had to go take care of on the home front, so he had to disappear for a little bit. And we brought in a, a, another guy to end there to kind of weave the story. He did a great job, too. But, uh, you know, then you do the festival season. You know, then you shot the movie and get it picked up finally. And uh, it's, a, it's a long process. It was uh, scary because there was so much money behind it and uh, so much work and so much on the line that uh, the actor nerves. nerves. It's like, I guess, releasing your first record, you know, and uh, but I'm happy with the results, you know.
0: Now, now, what was your feeling when you sat in a theater and you saw that in a theater and you saw your name connected to it, and it's a project you put your heart and soul into. What is the feeling that goes through you when that happens?
1: You know, it wasn't about me more than it was about the audience. To be honest with you, strange as that sounds, of course I was proud. But so we had a, a, a pretty good sized crowd at the uh, World Premiere <coughs> South by Southwest, and uh, sorry, the dogs barking. Up. We had a pretty good crowd at South by Southwest. And to see them laugh and cry in the spots that you would hope they would, and it happens, then you know you've done your job. And the same thing transcended when we took the movie around the world. I mean, the U.K., Japan, Australia, uh, New Zealand, you know, the Netherlands. Everywhere we took the film, same reaction in every spot, and that, that's just fulfilling.
0: Now, was it your idea, or was it the musician's idea, to have them get together and jam.
1: That was my idea. Look, <laughs> I was you know not only director but the full time producer on this thing, and producing that segment uh, almost killed me. <laughs> Every one of the guys said yes that were in town. You know the only ones that said no they either had a gig or other uh, you know such as they were doing. So uh, to put that together, I think we had 19 of the musicians there, and there's a lot of stuff that's not. In the film, you know, uh, other jam- other people that were there that we just couldn't squeeze in, but uh, it was right after Nam, which was fortunate for, for us because everybody was still in Los Angeles, and uh, it, it was a beast. I mean, it was it was a undertaking, and the producer that uh, engineered the, the music that day was uh, Johnny Kay. He's in Chicago, and he owed me a favor, and I called upon it. Uh, I'd helped him get a producing gig with uh, Megadeth, and he did two records with those guys. And he's like, I owe you a favor, man. I was like, okay. You know, and three years later, I called him on and I'm like, hey, I'm doing this all star jam at East West Studios in Los Angeles, and I need an engineer, producer, and mixer. And you owe me a favor. He goes, You're right, I do. I'll be there. Give me a ticket, and I'll see you there. And he came in and killed it, man, under so much pressure, you know, all those musicians interchanging, you know, amps and had two drum kits, and just the logistics was
0: uh, was crazy. Now, what it came it, out great? It, it did come out great. What's it, what's it make you feel as a filmmaker when you it's been it's gets it's got great reviews, and now because of uh-huh. Netflix, you know, more people can see it, which is great because yep. you know Netflix is wonderful. I mean, I sit there, I had heard about Higher Gun, and then. What I have Netflix and someone put on Facebook that they saw it and they were raving about it. And it's funny. They were saying about the Liberty DeVito story. That's Everyone always remembers that because it changes how people look at Billy Joel. But Liberty got wrong. People, you got to watch the movie to see the whole story because you'll be amazed. Or find my old Cooper talk with Liberty. He tells it on there. But how how did you react to reviews and what's it like when you get good reviews? It's got to make you really happy. And, and you know, there's a bad one, Every everyone, there's always a dick. You know, there could be, people can have like 99%, every, every critic likes it, and one idiot does it. And, you know, even if, you know, the guy's an idiot, it's got to bother you. How do you react to a good review, and how do you react to a bad review? Uh,
1: it doesn't phase me, really, to be honest with you. Um, I take the good one. I, I, not, you know, I've, I've learned not everybody's going to love what you do. And I get that. You know, some people drive to this too heavy metal. <laughs> Um, and I don't disagree with them, you know. Uh, had it been my choice alone, it wouldn't have been so heavy. But I'm glad that the people that are in there got their, their shot. You know? And uh, it's still a great movie, it doesn't matter if it's death metal, country, Christian, the, 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 the story is about that person, not so much about the music. So, And uh, I hope that's what people take away from it. But uh, once it hit Netflix, uh, I was shocked when it trended for about three weeks on Netflix and that that was really uh, a a great thing to see you know I think when we started the movie or when we got picked up by Netflix rather their subscriber base was at 87 million and in December when we hit their subscriber base was 127 million so with that many eyeballs you know uh, potentially looking at your movie that's that's really cool and uh, immediately I started getting calls for other projects and Uh, Got several underway So it was was a great thing Great platform
0: What are some of the projects You have coming up Can you talk about them?
1: Uh, I can't really discuss What they are But I can let you know That one of them uh, Involves the band Queen And uh, it's pretty epic Really interesting story What they did for some folks And uh, the other ones Are are music centric uh, But I'm kind of under NBA Right okay For the time being But yeah, but they are with some some pretty big uh, big online hitters.
0: Now, the Ray Parker movie, when do you expect that to be finished?
1: Finished? I don't know. Uh, Filming? Uh, We're going down tomorrow to start pre-production and do a bunch of cool stuff, so I'm I'm not uh, waiting. Uh, I really, really want to get this film made. I think it's going to uh, shock a lot of people. Um, he's excited about it I'm excited about it he's given me unprecedented access to him his family his friends his archives his music and uh, it's it's really going to be a cool ride for people you know Uh, and people will be shocked I mean literally shocked to know his story beyond just Ghostbusters
0: now before you know we wrap this up tell me one of the one or two of the coolest stories from Higher Gun that didn't make the screen. I know you had talked in the, on The Hustle uh, with John Lamoureux about a few of them, but just tell me uh, something that, you know, that you didn't make the screen or something that really surprised you or, or fascinated you as a music fan and a filmmaker.
1: You know, one of the ones, he's only got a couple of scenes in the movie, and again, it kills me that I couldn't uh, give more time to these people. Steve By and his interaction with Frank Zappa. <clears throat> And when he told me uh, 17 or 18, he had the balls to call him. He'd somehow gotten his phone number and got on the phone with Frank Zappa. I was like, dude, I'm a huge fan. Will you please listen to my tape? And for whatever reason, Frank said yes. You know, the next thing you know, he's playing with Frank Zappa, you know, and that he transcribed every song he's ever had. You know, so he sat there and transcribed everything. It's in the archives. So that was one really cool story that I wish we were going to tell, but it just didn't fit right. And the other one is with Neil Sean from Journey. You know, what a cool story. I mean, uh, he's a neighbor of mine out here, and I interviewed him. But his story really didn't fit in with us at the the time, like I said. uh, And, you know, at 14, man, he found himself playing with, like, Eric Clapton. And joining Santana. He had a choice, either join Eric Clapton's band or Santana. And Santana were not gonna pass him up and literally snagged him. I was like, Come on, we're getting you away from this Clapton fella, you know. And uh, just to learn his, his story from such an early age, you know, here locally where I am, you know, he used to sneak out of his house uh, and his folks when, you know, he was thirteen years old and go play uh these little jazz bars in San Francisco and he had to hide in the basement until it's his time to play. And oddly enough, you know, one night when he snuck out, his parents were there, like on the third row, and you know, on these tables and saw him, and he was as shocked as they were. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, what are you doing here? You know, so he's had a really fascinating career, and uh, he didn't let it go unknown that he wasn't in the movie. He called me up and was like, dude, put me in your movie. You know, and I've had to explain that to a couple of guys, you know, and it breaks my heart but, uh you know, you can only tell so many stories and, and keep the audience engaged with so many people.
0: Who would be your dream project? It, whether it be an actor, a writer, a musician, who, or a, a politician, who would be your dream documentary?
1: Huh. Judas Priest. Have you? That's been my... That's, that's my you know, I, I met Rob Halford briefly as a fan back in 1990 on the painkiller tour. Other than that, I've only seen him in concert anytime they come through town. Uh, I'd love to do one on Alice Cooper. However, there's a, a really good one called uh, Super Duper Alice Cooper that's out there now that lives. That's fantastic. Um, you know, yeah. So I'd, I'd have to say one on Judas Priest and just get forensic on it.
0: And And what is it? What do you look when you look back? you know, from, you know, you've had a very successful career in all different aspects. Did you ever sit there and think when you first started taking, you know, photographs, sneaking your camera in to a concert and taking photographs and your friends noticed it, did you ever think that you would end up making films?
1: Not in a million years, no. And, you know, uh, earlier I talked about going on Tattoo the Earth tour back in 99, um, I happened to bring a Sony handycam with me, just a little shitty palm-sized camera, and that's where my love of filmmaking came. I was like, wow, moving pictures. I can now tell a story. So uh, that's kind of where the idea started. Then I did my very first little mini documentary, one of those making-of albums with a band called Seven Dust that are from Atlanta. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never edited before, and I just had one of those egg-shaped IMAX. You know, I just bought, never used a computer before, and bought Final Cut Pro 2. That's how old this, how far this goes back. And I launched the system, and it pulls up. I'm, I almost threw up. I'm like, oh, my God, I've been paid for this project. And I was paid handsomely because that's when record company, still so had budgets. And had no idea what to do, so I went and bought Final Cut for Dummies, and that's how I got my way through. Uh, creating that that little documentary, and and the fans loved it. And there's some really cool behind-the-scenes stuff in the studio with uh, a pretty big producer now, Butch Walker, that does stuff with Pink and Apple Levine and and whatnot. But uh, really fascinating. But that's where my love of uh, filmmaking uh, came to be about.
0: Do Do you ever wish that you were around in the 80s, I mean, I mean, at this level of the 80s where you could direct videos when videos were such an epic thing. I've talked to so many artists about the videos, how they used to be this giant, lavish production. Now, you know, people don't watch the videos as much. Would, would you have loved to directed them back in the day, some of those classic, like maybe a Motley Crue video or any of those just wild videos? Are you kidding me? Yeah, man.
1: When I broke into doing music videos, it was more, you know, live videos, I guess, performance pieces. So it's still fun cutting that stuff because uh, that's when the band is in their element. But to tell a story in a music video would be so cool, you know. Um, I did shoot a five-finger death punch video. I didn't direct it. I was one of the camera guys on it for uh, a cover of House of the Rising Sun. It's almost like a Mad Max throwback piece. On okay. the desert with all these cool rat rods and whatnot. And, uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. There's a lot of work involved in that, you know, so many moving pieces. But uh, so cool.
0: Well, this has been great. I do want to ask you, I, 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 we're friends on Facebook. You get, uh, you get political on Facebook. And, you yep. know, and that's, that's good. Cause that's what Facebook's there for. But have you had any, and, and cause you get very, you, I, I get a lot of, uh, I do political jokes and people get irritated at me. You're very opinionated, uh-huh. which is good. Do you get any people who just sit there and go, cause people are like this on Facebook. You know, people don't want to sit there and talk to anyone more. Do you get any of people who probably sit there and go, Oh, your view stinks. Now I think your movie stinks. I'm just wondering cause people sometimes are babies how they react.
1: No, nothing directed at the movie just me personally but I don't care I mean those those people on there for a reason and if they don't like me they can unfollow me or or block me I don't get political like on my director fan page or okay. any of that kind of stuff just my personal but uh you know I, I am opinionated about it it's something serious you know I've got a son that I want to see uh, flourish and uh nothing bad happened to him you know there's, there's too many weirdos out there now and uh you know it's frightening times
0: would you ever do a project about something like that?
1: 100%. Okay. Yeah. Well, one of my projects is about, about this. Uh, I've gotten the back burner. You know, uh, a few years ago, I did do a documentary called Battlefield of the Mind about all the returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan that are suffering from PTSD. And it's still a serious issue, you know. And unfortunately, uh, people are on the news in Yachtville, which is right next to Napa, there was a great veterans facility that uh, three women were taken hostage and shot to death uh, just a couple days ago, and uh, I actually was there for a few days interviewing some of the staff and and uh, some of the uh, intake there that were suffering from PTSD. PTSD, and it's a wonderful facility, great staff, and uh, you know there's still a lot that needs to be done uh, about. That.
0: Well, I want to thank you for taking the time, Fran. Now, we can go give all your info so people can donate. Uh, Just go over a few of the perks. Again, just say where they can find you and all that information.
1: Yeah, so you can find our project uh, at Indiegogo.com. It's called Who you Going to Call? And uh, it's the story of Ray Parker Jr. It's a fascinating story. And uh, we're just trying to raise some seed seed funds right now just to get the ball going. Uh, as I said earlier, I am heading down there to start pre production. But I mean, you can get everything from like a production diary, so you find out what's going on every day, you know, uh, uh, signed postcards, uh, digital copies of the film, posters, guitar picks, signed Blu rays, T shirts. Um, you can help us get this shot on film by donating. There's also song ambassadors. So if there's a song that you love, like Mr. Telephone Man, uh, The Other One, and Ghostbusters, you can help. A, you know Get funds for that song uh, Private screenings Your name in the credits uh, the Video messages uh, Red carpet premieres Concerts, visit the set Sign guitars, there's so much And a lot of stuff on there is really reasonable Where everybody can, can get a really cool piece of memorabilia
0: That's awesome And your website is Do you Are you on Twitter?
1: I am on Twitter It's just at uh If you want to follow me on Facebook to keep up with stuff, it's uh, Fran Stryme Official. Uh, There's a Who You Gonna Call fan page. Of course, uh, the official Ray Parker Jr. site. If you want to go and like that as well to keep up with uh, all the cool things. And we're going to do a Facebook Live uh, either tomorrow or Wednesday. So I urge uh, all the fans to uh, go check one of those sites to find out exactly what time and, and where they can sign and see it.
0: Great. Well, people, so people check it out. Go watch Hired Gun. You want to go donate, go to Indiegogo, donate, because you got some really, I checked out the stuff, It's some really cool stuff, and follow Fran. Fran. Uh, I kept thinking I was going to call him Fran Stein. I'm like, no, then I'm an idiot. So people follow him. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at cooper Talk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's over 675 episodes up there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Instagram cooper talk 1 I post promotion for my show and I post pictures of food because as you remember Years ago, I had that heart problem, so I wrote a cookbook, and there's pictures of my food that are in the book. Go to StopTheSalt.com to get my cookbook. It's 120 low-sodium recipes, no long list of ingredients or pictures to intimidate you. It's just easy to make food, and we got to be healthy, especially with the summer coming up. You can get it at Amazon, but if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money, and I'll sign it for you. So people donate to... Uh, France Project. Watch Hired Gun. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.